0: john 11 verse 45 let's go to the lord in prayer father would you just wake us up to you this morning would you wake us up to the reality that you are here with us that you love us that you want to speak to us through your word lord we tremble before your word we want to be in a place where we're open to hear so lord would you make our hearts and our lives that fertile soil in jesus name amen you can have a seat there's nothing quite like a black and white photo. If you look at a a good black and white uh, photo in print, you notice that it's all about the contrast, isn't it? That the the dark, the black, it really causes the white to pop and vice versa. And what we're going to see in our text this morning is it is a story of contrast, a lesson of contrast. There's a group of people that are trying to kill Christ they're plotting his murder his his death his crucifixion but then there's those who are believing in him and trusting in him for salvation this is then followed by mary who is anointing the feet of jesus with precious expensive costly ointment but we find judas in the backdrop who is longing for more money he's stealing from the money and he's saying this expensive gift could have been sold to give to the poor but he was really looking for an opportunity to to steal and so this heart of worship that mary had is contrasted by judas's heart of of selfishness so hopefully as we go through this this morning we learn more about worship we see where our heart is in regards to god's word so join me in verse 45 then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. If you happen to miss last week, we studied Lazarus being raised from the dead. Much of the community came around Mary and Martha to grieve with them. Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. God raised Lazarus from the dead. Many witnessed this. God uses the tragedy of Lazarus' death for the opportunity of his resurrection to get the heart of the community. Many believe in Christ because they've seen what God has done in Lazarus' life. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. So some believed, but then others chose to go and rat Jesus out to the Pharisees. They know the Pharisees are wanting to kill Christ and like, this is more opportunity to get Christ into trouble. In verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man's works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Isn't that amazing? They have to have an emergency meeting. Let's get the council together. Let's get the high priests together, the chief priests together. Because if we just allow Christ to continue in this manner and in this way, everybody's going to believe in him. Rome is going to come and take our nation because our nation is out of control. They're not going to like this commotion that is taking place. And the end result is we're going to lose our place. That's what they're really worried about. Why do they kill Christ? Envy, jealousy. This is how much their position of power as a religious leaders meant to them that they were going to guard it at all, all costs. If we see Christ as a threat to something in our lives, we haven't yet come to that place of really living in surrender to Christ. Because if we know the character and nature of Christ, we don't see him as a threat. We acknowledge his lordship and we go, I want you to be the Lord of my life. What this might have looked like if the chief priests in the temple would have acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah. They're the ones that are closest to the word of God. They're closest to the sacrificial system. And if their hearts would have been in a place to be able to see and recognize and know who Jesus is. So verse 48. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. So the high priest is going to speak up in this urgent meeting. And this is what he has to say. Nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. He's saying it's better for Jesus to die than for the whole country to perish. But John highlights that Caiaphas was prophesying of Christ's death, and he didn't even realize it. Now this, he didn't say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So you have the enemies of Christ, those that are plotting his death, plotting his crucifixion, and even in their planning meeting, they're prophesying about God's plan unaware. Caiaphas is saying it's expedient that one man should die instead of the whole nation And John says he's prophesying about Jesus' death. Aren't we so thankful and grateful and isn't it expedient for us and all of human history that Jesus would die in our place so that we wouldn't have to die, so that we wouldn't have to be internally separated from God? The point of Christ's death is to gather together those who would believe, gather together the children of God who are scattered, This is amazing to me. This shows who is really in control here. In verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Such opposition to Christ where they're plotting, they're planning. You know, when you sit down and you do a budget, you're you're planning, aren't you? Right? They're budgeting for Christ's death. They're planning for Christ's death. They're being intentional about how can we try to kill Christ. There's still that same type of opposition to Jesus. There's some that would look at Christ and see Christ as a threat. And they say, we don't want Christ mentioned at this workplace. We do not want the name of Jesus mentioned at this school. You can talk about whatever you want, but do not talk about Jesus, you can pray but but don't pray in the name of Jesus we don't want Christ to be in our culture. Why is that? Why is there such opposition to Jesus? because I think inherently they know that the power of jesus you know they know that Jesus will come in a in a powerful way and, and maybe not do the things that they're desiring and they're they're wanting to do in verse fifty four therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. We're getting very close to the end of Christ's life. In the last little season here, he doesn't walk openly in Jerusalem anymore. He goes up to Ephraim, which is north of Jerusalem near Samaria, and he hangs out there until the last week of his life. In verse 55, And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. We're near to the Passover. Christ is crucified upon the the Passover. It's the last week of Christ's life. And, And leading up to this, people are now coming into Jerusalem to purify themselves so they're ready to celebrate Passover. Now you might be saying, well, what is Passover? It goes back to the Old Testament where the children of Israel are slaves in Egypt. They've been slaves for hundreds of years. God calls Moses to confront Pharaoh with all of these signs, these plagues, and Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. The last plague was the death of the oldest son. And for the Hebrews, God says, take a lamb and have this lamb killed and put the blood of the lamb on the door of your home and then death will pass over thus the name pass over judgment passes over because you've applied the blood of the lamb to the door of your home the egyptians didn't do this the oldest son passes away and pharaoh finally softens his heart and lets the children of israel leave and this is a picture god is foreshadowing he's painting a portrait of what salvation is going to look like. Jesus is the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist saw Christ, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when we believe in Christ and we apply the blood of Jesus to our hearts, to our lives, judgment passes over. We're justified, we're declared righteous. It's not happen chance that Jesus was crucified on Passover. He's fulfilling this picture that was painted and saying, I am the Passover lamb. When Christ died upon the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two. You have to know that the word got out that something significant was taking place in Jerusalem when the veil of the temple was torn in two, separating that veil, separating humanity from God's presence. Only the high priest could go in One day a year, and then through the death of Jesus Christ, Him being the Passover lamb, for those that believe, Jesus is welcoming us into the presence of God. What's interesting, this year, 2019, do you know when Passover is? It's this Friday, Good Friday. The nation of Israel will be heading into Passover. God instructed them to celebrate the Passover every year on a specific date. So, Some Jews have come to understand Jesus's the fulfillment of that feast. Other Jews have not and reject Christ as their savior. But you know what? We can, as we go into Good Friday, as we have our Good Friday service right here at church at 6.30, Christ was crucified on the Passover. And the Passover will begin on the 19th and go through April uh, 27th. When I was reading this, what struck me is that You have these multitudes coming to Jerusalem to try to purify themselves through the law, through what is called a mikvah, where you would would bathe to make sure that you are clean, to be able to go into the temple to celebrate this. And here's Jesus who's going to come as the lamb, and he is going to provide the ultimate purification. And thankfully, We don't have to go to the law to try to find purification, that the blood of Jesus purifies us. So verse 56, then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Contemplating, do you think Jesus is going to come to the feast? And verse 57, now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So really two reactions here. Lazarus raised from the dead. You have many people believing. You have many people responding at the majesty of Christ and they're trusting Christ for for who he is. But then you've got another group of people that feel threatened, that choose to oppose Christ, that are plotting his death and getting the word out. If you know where Jesus is, then let us know so that we can arrest him. Let's get into chapter 12. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Where Lazarus, who was, who had been dead, who he raised from the dead. Six days before the Passover. So much of the Gospels, guys, is dedicated to this last week of Christ. The Gospel of John, almost 50% is focused to this last week. Matthew, 33%. Mark, 40%. And Luke, 25%. So as you're reading the Gospels, much of the focus is on this last week of Christ. Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, where Lazarus had died, and God had raised him from the dead. In verse 2, There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with them. This seems to be a celebration feast of Lazarus' resurrection. Can you imagine how joyous this meal was? This thank you meal to, to Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead? It also points to the marriage feast of the Lamb when all believers will be raised unto eternal life, and Jesus is going to throw a feast for his bride. You're not going to be counting calories at that meal. You're going to be have a glorified body that's got the perfect metabolism, right? It's all going to be heavenly organic. And we're going to be celebrating the resurrection, celebrating eternal life with our Savior. That's what we long for. That's what we groan for. That's what we look forward to. As much as this is a celebration, Lazarus is going to die again, isn't he? Mary and Martha will will die, but at that marriage feast of the Lamb, death will be no more. And in this, in verse 2, we find that Martha is serving. If you remember from Luke chapter 10, Martha had another meal for Christ. But at that particular meal, she got upset because her sister Mary wasn't doing enough work, wasn't pulling her weight. Where's Mary? Where's Mary? I got all this food to prepare, and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching. Martha does something that's interesting. She's going, I'm going to go right to Jesus, and I'm going to rat out my sister. Instead of just going to Mary saying, could you give me some help? She's thinking, Jesus is going to agree with me, and he's probably going to scold, instruct mary in this so she comes before martha and presents her case and jesus said you're worried and troubled about many things speaking to martha but mary has chosen the one thing that is needed the one thing that's need needful to sit and hear my words now we find this is after that that martha is still serving the problem wasn't that martha was serving the problem was the attitude in which she was serving. We've all been there, haven't we? Am I the only one that sees the dirty dishes around this house, right? What do you, what do you mean? You're just going to throw your dirty dishes down and expect me to pick them up? Am I the only one that serves at this church? You know, maybe you serve at Rocky Mountain Calvary. Doesn't anybody else see the needs, you know? Don't they realize that there's so many things that need to, to be done here? Maybe at your work, you're like, man, I am pulling more than my fair share of the weight. You know, these, these slackers. And we lose the joy of serving. We, we lose the motivation of, man, I want to serve unto Christ. It seems to me that Martha's gotten that sorted out in her heart and life now. The problem was never that she was serving. The problem was the way in which uh, she was serving. Verse 3, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of Spikenard anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Mary decides to take this opportunity with Jesus being in her home to worship and she gets some ointment that's very dear to her and very costly and begins to pour it out on the feet of Jesus and then wipe his feet with with her hair. Judas is going to point out in just a moment that this oil could have been sold for 300 denarii. Average day wage was one denarii. This is almost one year of wage. This isn't a very expensive gift. Could you imagine taking one year of salary and blowing it in 15 minutes? What do you make in a year? And say, I'm going to extravagantly lay this out on the feet of Jesus. We learn about worship here that there's sacrifice involved in worship. The first time the word worship is used in the Bible, a lot of times when you see a word for the first time in scripture, it unlocks an understanding of that principle. It's Genesis 22. God asks Abraham to go and sacrifice his only son Isaac, the promised child. Abraham responds and says, My son and I are going to go and worship. Abraham uses the word worship for the first time in scripture. He understood that worship involves sacrifice. Now, how do we get to this place where Mary's at, where we're willing to sacrifice to worship Christ? I believe it happens through our imagination and our wonder being captivated by who Jesus is. She's so amazed at Christ, the way that he loves them. She's so overwhelmed that Christ would come and raise her brother from the dead. That for her, it's not much of a sacrifice to give up this ointment that costs so much. Because she is in love with Jesus. Worship flows from whatever has captivated our attention captivated our sense of of wonder i really enjoy kids i enjoy spending time with kids and i love that elementary age of life six seven because their imagination you can just see it coming over them and their whole attention is captivated on on one particular thing and that's kind of the idea of worship but it also happens to us as adults don't we Something gets our attention. Something gets our, our sense of wonder. And those that we live with, they know what we worship. My kids could come and tell you, well, this is what dad is really into. This is what dad talks about all the time. This is what has gotten his attention. This is where he, he spends his, his free time, right? Your spouse could tell you what you worship. Come on now, right? Your spouse knows, Your spouse knows this is really what has their attention. This is really what moves them. This is what they they geek out on. This is what they they spend all of their time on. And so worship will flow when we get to that place where Christ has our wonder, where Christ has our imagination. And we say, I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm, I'm more than willing to offer this to the Lord. Paul put it this way. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present yourself as a living sacrifice. When we get overwhelmed by the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God, we get creative in our worship. Isn't this creative? This isn't normal. This isn't what everyone is doing. And we start to go, you know, how can I give of financial resources to Jesus? Giving financially is an expression of worship. It's said that the last thing to be reached in our lives is our wallet, right? What we do with God's money, with what he's entrusted to us, expresses our, our priority. Say, Lord, I want to take of some of these resources that you've given to me, and I want to give to your work. I want to give to your, your kingdom. I, I get it. I realize that, that worship involves sacrifice, where we're willing to invest our time into worship of the Lord. One of the things that we value most in our culture is our time because we have so little of it. Jesus gets our wonder. He gets our excitement. And we say, man, I want to spend time in the word. I want to spend time in prayer. I want to spend time serving others because I know as I do that, I'm serving Jesus. I'm going to lay my time down at the feet of Jesus. The way that we invest our time, does it reflect our love for Jesus? If someone looked at my eye calendar, would they see a love for Jesus in there, right? Also, the talents that God has given to us to be able to invest those God-given abilities in worship unto the Lord. So worship involves sacrifice, but also worship involves expression. Notice that she expressed the worship. She poured out the ointment on the feet of Jesus. She wiped it with her hair. She wanted it to be personal. Husbands, what if you talked with your wife on your honeymoon and said, you know what, babe, let's just get something straight here. This is how this is going to go in our marriage, is I'm going to tell you right now that I love you. And I'm not going to tell you that every day because if it ever changes, I'll just come back and let you know. So it kind of seems redundant to tell you every day, I love you, right? Let's just make our, our marriage a lot more simpler. How do you think that would go over with your wife? Right? Can I get a thumb down, ladies? Yeah, right? Our wives see the value of our love being expressed to them. That's why flowers are so meaningful. That's why, hey, I've carved out some time. Let's, let's, let's spend some quality time together. Here's a project that you need to get done at the house. I want to invest time in that, in that project. It's the expression of love. In our relationship with Jesus, to, to express it. To sing to the Lord. To raise our hands in worship to the Lord. A time to get on our knees before the Lord. To get creative this week and say, Jesus, how can I express my love to you? Is maybe going across the street and caring for a neighbor a creative expression of your love for Jesus? Express it, express it. Tell him, declare it. Jesus, I love you. Thank you so much for who you are in my life. And then notice the impact of worship. I love this. The whole room gets filled with this wonderful smell of this costly ointment. No doubt, probably this is why this fragrance is, is worth so much, is because of the amazing smell that it would bring into the room. And guys, when we worship Jesus, that starts to have impact. You can't fake this. I can't fake it. You can't conjure it up. can't cook it up. It just happens. When we worship Jesus, when we're touched by His love, then all of a sudden... People just start to see the reality of Christ in our life. It's really the overflow of worship. Sometimes we worship impact. We worship legacy. I want to be known as a godly husband, as a, as a godly father. I want to impact hearts for, for Christ. But isn't that a byproduct of simply loving Jesus? Right? I'm not really concerned about the legacy part. But I'm concerned with loving Jesus. I want to worship him. I want to be captivated with him. And sometimes that's a little bit of a struggle. We're more concerned about the impact than the actual worship. In verse 4, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box And he used to take what was put in it. So as Mary is giving of her finances, giving something that's very valuable to her, here's Judas in contrast to her, who goes, you know what? Why was this so carelessly poured out upon the feet of Jesus? You could have sold it and given that money to the poor. Imagine how one year's wage could go to the poor. But Judas wasn't gonna give the money to the poor. He was the treasurer He was the church treasurer. And he's got his hand in the money box and he would steal from the money that would come in that Christ would do ministry through, that physical resources. What did Judas receive for betraying Christ? 30 pieces of silver. He betrays Christ over 30 pieces of silver. It seems that money is an issue for Judas. He hasn't surrendered that over to to the Lord. And this brings us to resistance to worship. When you begin to worship the Lord in this way that Mary is, and Christ becomes priority in our lives, there's going to be resistance. You might have people in your life that are going, why are you here on a Sunday at nine in the morning? It's a beautiful day. You could be out hiking in Garden of the Gods or Red Rocks Canyon. Isn't that a lot, much more of a beautiful sanctuary than these cinder blocks on Austin Bluffs and Academy? They don't get why you're here. They don't get why you see the importance of taking time to worship the Lord together with God's people. What are you you doing raising your kids in, in God's ways? Why are you trying to cram Jesus down, down their throats. How come you want to pray at a family gathering? You're offending me. We're not going to pray together at a, a family gathering. And there's that resistance to, to worship. But here's what I find happening, is that we need to be careful that we don't become the Judas in the story. David was really excited that the Ark of the Covenant was finally coming back to Jerusalem and had been in the hands of the Philistines. The first time they bring in the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, they do it the wrong way against God's word, and death results. So he decided to take six steps and stop and worship. Take six steps and stop and worship. And he gets to Jerusalem, and he's so excited, he starts dancing around in his boxers in an ephod. Here's the king, so in love with God. Michael, his wife, looks from the window sees David and she despises him for his worship. She resists his worship and says he's acting undignified. He's not presenting the royal family in the way that that he should. And how often sometimes in our hearts and in our lives, it's easy for us to criticize worship than to participate in it we come in on a Sunday morning and I think the enemy tends to attack us and before long we're analyzing the worship songs instead of singing them we're going who picked these songs I don't really like this song I think we sang this two weeks ago and I'm tired of this man it's too loud it's not loud enough right and before you know it half of The worship set is over and our hearts have come to a critical place. We might even be looking around the sanctuary and we go, you know, they're just into it a little too much. Like you raising your hands is annoying me. You're you're singing so loud and you're off key. Do you not realize that you're off key? Like, would it be the loving thing to just go tell them that they're off key? Right? Truth be told, If I'm listening to a worship album, especially if it's a a new album and maybe we've purchased it on iTunes, I go through and I listen to it and I go, I don't like half of these songs. Like half of these songs are really annoying me, right? And I pick apart the music and the lyrics and I'm like, who threw in the 80s synthesizer, right? (laughs) And then before I know it, I've missed the whole point of the album and I've missed the heart of those people that have taken time and talent and energy and saying, we want to create music to be able to worship the Lord. And I'm criticizing worship instead of participating in it. So may we be careful to not go down that road and say, I want to enter into worship and not be in that place of resisting worship. Verse 7. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. The defender of worship. Jesus defends Mary in her worship. He says, leave her alone, Judas. She's prepared my body for burial. The disciples don't understand that Christ is headed to crucifixion and resurrection, even though he told them it would go right over their head. And he says, what she has done is going to stand out. In Mark 14, verse 9, Jesus said this, Surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will always be told as a memorial to her. Talk about legacy. So Jesus defends her worship and Jesus gives us this principle and he says, you're always going to have needs. The poor are always going to be among you. And it's not that Jesus doesn't care for the poor. There are times to meet those needs, but not... At the place of forsaking worship or neglecting worship, sometimes in our relationship with the Lord, we can lose sight of worship. But we're really good at meeting needs. We're we're really good at going. Okay, here's a need that needs to be met, but I haven't taken any time to worship the Lord today, this morning. In verse nine, now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only but that they may also see Lazarus whom he'd raised from the dead. They want to see Jesus, but they also want to see Lazarus because God had raised him from the dead. Sometimes people will get interested in Jesus because of what he's done in your life, what he's done in our lives. They go, I don't know about this Jesus guy, but I know you're different. Something has happened to you. And I want to spend time with you to see where this change has taken place. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. John very systematically is showing us the contrast. Here's those that are interested in Christ, believing in Christ, those that are fanatical about Christ, and those that are plotting his death. And they're not only plotting the death of Jesus, but they're also plotting the death of Lazarus. They see Lazarus as a threat to their cause. Because on the account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Christ reveals hearts. As he enters the room, he reveals those that are opposed to him and also those who believe in him. As Christ is there at Mary and Martha's table, we see the heart of Mary revealed, the heart of a worshiper. But we also see the heart of the betrayer, Judas, Jesus reveals hearts. Guys, as we wrap up this morning, is God doesn't want our worship to simply be Sunday morning. Sunday morning at nine o'clock, we hit the stopwatch, we go, it's time to check in to worship. I'm gonna worship the Lord. Gonna sing, gonna spend time in the word. All right, got that done for the week right? Now it's me time. Now I'm just going to be super busy, do all the things that I need to do. Oh my goodness, it's Sunday morning again. It's time. It's worship time, right? He desires for our worship to be a lifestyle. And as we come together, which is so important on Sunday mornings at at nine o'clock, this is the culmination of the week. (laughs) This is the culmination of worshiping him and spending time with him and serving him. And then we get to come together in this, this celebration. All of life has really summed up in worship. Sometimes there's a reality in our lives, and Charles Spurgeon put it this way, that we don't see the value of worship until we've experienced the emptiness of everything else. So it's that emptiness of, you know, as great as this life is, as great as relationships are, as great as going for hikes is, as great fill in the blank, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's emptiness. And that emptiness leads us to that fulfillment of worshiping the Lord. Church, brother and sister in Christ, you are created to worship. What you're going to do for all of eternity is you're going to worship, Right? And I want to leave you with this book or this verse from the book of Hebrews. You don't have to turn there. I'll I'll read it to you. It's Hebrews 13, verse 15. It says, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. God calls it a sacrifice of praise. There will be times where you feel like... Worshiping, where you feel like giving the fruit of your lips and telling God thank you. But there'll be other times where you don't. There'll be other days where you don't. And it's where we choose to worship. God, I'm giving you the sacrifice of praise. So this morning, you may find yourself, well, you're all geared up to worship. It's one of those mornings where you woke up and you're like, the sun is shining. There's snow on the peak. Jesus loves me. He's giving me coffee. Woo! Right? Well, in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. But others of you are like, man, I feel kind of depressed this morning. I feel a bit lethargic. God feels distant. I'm searching to find where the things are that are thankful. You too can make that decision of saying, I'm going to choose to be thankful. I'm going to choose to worship. I'm going to give this sacrifice of praise. So let's stand together and let's do just that. Jesus we thank you and we take the opportunity this morning to worship you there is none like you you love us you love us unconditionally your presence is with us in our lives your promises your grace your forgiveness we're your sons we're your daughters we love you we ask that you would stir in us that sense of wonder That sense of you captivating our attention and our imagination and worship would just pour out of us even now and as we head into our week. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.